Good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. We have, uh, we have an ambitious Sunday prepared. Uh, this is Pentecost Sunday, one of the most important days in the church calendar, and this is the day we, we celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I thought, you know, in, in celebration of that today, we should, instead of just picking a passage of the Bible, we should just pick the Bible. So we're just going to go cover to cover through the Bible today. And, you know, you, you came here thinking we'd have brunch today. I actually think we're going to have dinner together. Uh, so what I want to do is just open, invite you to open your Bible to anywhere you would like, and we will be there in just a, a little bit. Uh, we're going to cover a lot today. And, and the trouble with trying to cover a lot of Scripture is that no one passage gets all of the attention that we'd like to give it. But my hope is that as we go through a kind of whirlwind tour of Scripture, one of the more prominent themes of Scripture will stand out very clearly to us, and we'll grasp a little bit more of the Bible as a whole. You know, we, we tend to take it just story by story. We focus on one passage or one story at a time. Today, I want to look at it as a whole. And so I'm going to throw a lot of information out, and there may be some information overload but we will be fine. You don't have to remember every detail. We'll hear that big overarching story, and, and that's what we're focusing on today. We're going to focus on the idea of temple in Scripture, and we're going to begin in Genesis 1, chapter 1, and we'll read about the first two days of creation. Genesis 1, 1 through 8, and it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. And so God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so, and God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Genesis 1 continues through the first, those six days of creation, and beginning in Genesis 2, we read about the seventh day in which God recognized that His creation was complete, and it was good, and He rested. Now, looking at that story, why do you think the Jewish people originally felt that that story was worth retaining? It wasn't originally written down. None of Scripture was originally written down. Before Hebrew was developed as a written language, which, which happened in the early 500 B.C.s, the story was told orally and passed down from one generation to another. Why do you feel like they decided this story was worth telling to the next generation? Surely no one thought that this was like a how-to guide. If you ever want to create your own earth, here's the seven steps you take, right? No one expected that one of their descendants would create their own earth and need to know how, how this all works. And in pre-scientific minds of the people who originally told the story, that question of how wasn't so important anyway. That's not the question they would have stressed. They wouldn't care so much about the how, they'd care about the why. They wouldn't ask, how did God create? They would ask, 
Why did God create? And why did God create the way He created? And the answer to those questions is found in these seven days. If we skip ahead a little bit to Exodus chapter 25 and all the way through Exodus 40, we read about a time in Israel's history in which God instructs them to build a tabernacle and the instructions for building a tabernacle, a kind of portable temple, a tent. And if you read closely, you might begin to recognize parallels between the construction of the tabernacle and the, the creation of the earth. In Genesis 1, on the first day, it says, in the beginning, God. God was present in His creation. His Spirit hovered over the waters. And the instruction, the first instruction in the tabernacle in Exodus 25 was to build the Ark of Covenant. We have a picture this morning. The Ark of Covenant. You might recognize Indiana Jones there on the side. They actually did a pretty good job in that of, of portraying what the Ark of Covenant might look like. And it says, there above the cover, between two cherubim that are on the Ark of Covenant law, I will meet with you and give, you and give all my commands to the Israelites. So, it says God will be present there. God was present in creation. He was present in His tabernacle and, and through this ark. Now, going quickly, I just want to highlight a few other parallels between Genesis 1 and, and these, this uh, tabernacle construction in 25 through 40 of Exodus. It says, on the second day, Scripture says, let there be a firmament, a land which separates bodies of water from water, or, or a, a sky, earth and sky, which separates water from water. In Exodus 26, it describes a veil, saying, the veil shall divide for you between the holy and the holy of holies. In both passages, separation, a body of separation. The third day focuses on the water, and it says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered. And for the tabernacle, it says, you shall make a copper basin with a base of copper for washing, both focusing on water. The instruction of the tabernacle on the fourth day, uh, or, or rather creation on the fourth day, let, the lights in the firmament, let there be light in the firmament of heaven. And the instruction in the tabernacle is to make a lampstand of pure gold. On the fifth day, God created birds, and He stated, let the water swarm abundantly with moving creatures that have life, and let the birds fly above the earth. And on the tabernacle... It says, the cherubim shall spread their wings upward, as it describes the construction of the ark. On the sixth day, humankind was created, and God says, the Scripture says, so God created humankind in His image. And for the tabernacle, Aaron was appointed priest. Moses was told, bring near Aaron your brother, the high priest, to perform his duties in the sanctuary, service to God in the sanctuary. We'll describe in a minute the importance of Aaron and Adam and the role of priest. And then finally, on the seventh day, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, Genesis 2.1. And in Exodus 39.32, the same finality was noted. All of the work was finished, it says, I'm talking about the tabernacle. Regarding the creation of the world, God says, uh, it says God blessed them. Regarding the, the construction of the tabernacle, it says Moses blessed them. Blessing in both places as the, the construction was finished. Regarding the creation of the world, Genesis 2-3 says, and He sanctified it. God sanctified it. And regarding the finishing of the tabernacle, it says, Moses anointed it and sanctified it. The parallels between the construction of, the, of creation and the construction of tabernacle. 
Now, we might assume with all of these parallels that the tabernacle was, was created in order to mirror what God did in creation, but that assumption would mislead us. In ancient Near Eastern thought, the liturgy of the tabernacle was well known. Rather than hearing that the tabernacle mirrored creation, those early hearers of the creation story would recognize that creation mirrors the construction of a tabernacle or a temple. When God created the earth, He was building for Himself a temple. Creation is the temple where God is to be worshipped, and He placed priests in His temple. The temple building ritual held many commonalities among people in ancient Near Eastern religions. A person didn't have to be Jewish to recognize that what God was doing in this passage was building a temple. And what an ancient Near Eastern hearer may have recognized far more readily than we do was that the last thing that gets placed in the temple is an image of the God who is to be worshipped, often an idol, but in this case, God's divine image bearers, humankind, that He placed there in His temple. And humankind is given a priestly vocation. Adam is tasked with the same thing as Aaron later, to be a priest in God's temple. All throughout the Old Testament, God calls His people to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, mediators of God's presence, and a people set apart for a different kind of life. That is our purpose. That is our sole job. We are called to be God's priests. Our human vocation is to reflect the Creator's purpose into the world. We are called to articulate the worship that arises out of God's creation, out of every stone and tree and plant. The role of the priest, it will eventually be given to Aaron, but before Aaron is priest, it's understood that all humanity functions as priests in God's earthly temple. And the temple itself is not only a place of worship, but the temple itself is worship. Such care and detail went into every single aspect of it. It was worship. But of course, the original priests, humankind chose to worship the creature rather than the Creator. Adam and Eve turned their affections from God to themselves. They focused on their own interests. They loved their own interests more than they loved God. And the garden was corrupted, and humanity was infected by the disease of sin and just as the garden temple was corrupted, so was our created purpose. We failed to live into our calling as priests. Now, we're going to move far more quickly right now because, well, because my stomach is growling and dinner isn't going to be such a good idea after all. We're going to have to keep it as brunch. Um, I, I want us to see that from the opening words of Scripture, the focus is on tabernacle and temple, God's presence in His creation God has built for Himself a tabernacle. We can trace the fallenness of creation through Adam and Eve, through Cain and, and the Tower of Babel, but we can, also see, uh, we can also see God working differently. Although in the Tower of Babel there was a shift and, and people, rather than worshiping God, sought out to become gods, God nevertheless is present through all of these stories. God God redeems fallenness through all of these stories. We see it in the story of Abraham, who was a new type of Adam, who God acted on behalf of, bringing him into a new future. We see it in Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers, 
We, we eventually find God's people in Egypt, and, and we see God's hand of redemption there. God, all throughout His story, is working to redeem. Egypt's an important stop for us to make because Egypt is anti-creation. It's the epitome of humanity worshiping their own interests at the expense of others. When God created, it was good, but Egypt was an inversion of His ordered creation. It enslaved rather than offering freedom. It, it oppressed rather than worshiped. It is, it is the center of, of what evil looks like when it is formed in a group of people. It's slavery to evil. It's the enslavement of other humans. And part of the point of the Exodus story is to reveal God's power as creator, but also to reveal God's power to judge not only Egypt, but all Egypt, all empires that oppress. And so God's people are, are delivered from Egypt, and it's after the deliverance from Egypt that we finally encounter the, the tabernacle that we looked at a moment ago. God instructs His people to create for Him a tent, a portable dwelling place, so that as they move, He can move with them. And that the tent is about far more than just ritual worship. It's not about going through the motions of worship, but about embodied worship. God is there. It's not just a religious place where religious people go to do religious things, but the place in which the divine glory of God resides. God is in that space and time, present with His people in that tent, and it provides for Israel a foretaste of creation restored, creation renewed. The tabernacle is a small working model of Eden restored, of new creation that God intends to, to bring about in which God once again dwells with His people as He did in Eden. It's a, it's a miniature-scale version of the new heavens and earth. And to enter the tabernacle is to enter heaven itself. The tabernacle is a signpost that points ahead of itself. It's a signpost for God's people that God will be with them. He will remain with them. Now, when I told you to, to open your Bible to anywhere you like, one of you opened your Bible to Leviticus and you thought, ha, he won't stop here. Well, ha, I'm proving you wrong. <laughs> Just to prove you wrong. That long, tedious feeling book, that, that one that's, you know, if you start your Bible reading plan in January and you think you're going to get through your whole Bible, Leviticus is the place that messes you up. It's not fair that it's the third book, right? Um, but but that, that long, tedious feeling book of laws and names and, and laws and names, which, by the way, if you have the patience for it, is incredible and, and beautiful, even though it might be hard to get through, those laws are God's provision, their instructions for His people, this is how you steward over God's presence. This is how a people live when God is in their midst. It's teaching Israel how to be a new kind of, of civilization. The people who have newly entered the promised land, it teaches them how to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It calls them to be a new creation people, or even, in fact, to be the new creation itself. And God even points forward in, in Leviticus to a more permanent dwelling place than the tabernacle. He hints at the temple when He says in Leviticus 26, 11, I will place my dwelling in your midst. Now, we're going to do another jump forward in Scripture, but before we do, I just want to offer a, a five-second review. 
So far in the story, God has created a garden temple, and humankind has chosen to worship themselves rather than Him and could not stay in that garden temple. And so God began a work of redemption, starting in Adam and Eve and carrying throughout Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Moses and the Israelites. They build a temple, a tabernacle, a mobile temple, and they receive the law. And so we pick up from there, and eventually the Israelites come to the promised land, and after years of wavering between faithfulness and unfaithfulness, of looking to God and then looking back at themselves and God and themselves and going back and forth through the leadership of judges, periods of strength and failure, the Israelites finally choose to have a king. They start with Saul, and then they, they go to David. David's story mirrors Israel's story in many ways. David, sometimes David gets it. Sometimes David misses the point completely. And all of the while, God is faithful to him. Sometimes David seems like a pillar of faith, and sometimes we see his sin and his pride. But God doesn't abandon him. God is consistently faithful to David, and David is a reflection of Israel. And so when David sits on the throne, he recognizes that he lives in a palace, but God doesn't live in a temple, and he's disturbed. Why should he have this great palace while God is in this mobile shack? And the story is told in 2 Samuel 7. It says, After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, I'm here living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make you your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. If you'll allow me just some interpretational liberties, David said to God, I want to build you a temple. 
And God said to David, the kind of temple that I want is not a building, it's a people. God has never been bound to a place. The tabernacle was mobile on purpose. It was so that God could be with His people. He called them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God intends to remain with His people. The temple that He wants is the house that He will build for David. It's a lineage. It's a people. And so, rather than allowing David to build God a house, God says, the Lord Himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish His kingdom. He is the one who will build my house for my name, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. I will be His Father. He will be my son. God points forward to Solomon who will build his temple. But not only to Solomon, God points further ahead to Jesus, the true temple builder. The building itself, the temple built by Solomon, will not be divine. God will come in the flesh. The temple will be embodied in human form. When Solomon builds a temple, he'll follow that same seven part construction of the tabernacle that we read in creation, the temple building ritual that that God used when He formed the earth. But once again in the story, everything will go wrong. Once again, God's people will trust in their own strength and power, just like they did in Babel, just like they did in creation. And it starts with Solomon himself, the builder of the temple, who immediately begins to mirror Egypt rather than the holy nation he's called to. He enslaves his own people to build storehouses and force military service as he hoards up horses and chariots, which are Egypt's and and every empire's weapons of control and dominance. And after Solomon's death, everything falls further into chaos as a result of turning from the kind of people who God has called them to be, everything crumbles. The nation of Israel is split into the northern nation of Israel and the southern nation of Judah. The Assyrians conquer the north. The Babylonians conquer the south. God's people are driven from their homes. The temple is destroyed. And hardest of all, the Ark of Covenant is permanently lost in everything. The place of God's presence was demolished, and the people who were supposed to bear God's presence were scattered. And 70 years pass before a new generation is allowed to return to their home in Judah and Jerusalem. And when they did, when they finally returned home generations later, they failed to make the temple their priority. Returning home was, was filled with problems. It doesn't fix their problems. They, they built up their homes. They built up their land again. And finally, they decided that it was worth focusing on the temple after all. The temple was built half-heartedly. It was an afterthought. It wasn't their priority. They had other priorities first, and the prophets of their day mourned that decision because they recognized, even when the temple was completed, that although it was technically rebuilt, it was not rebuilt to the standards of the first temple. And God did not inhabit it the way He did the first temple. The glory of God did not return to the second temple. It was a religious building, but it was not a miniature working model of a new creation. God wasn't there, and that reality was devastating 
to God's people. Now, you've held on this long, and and there's probably information overload. So here's the 10-second recap now. We'll get to the really good parts from here. God created the temple. It was His creation. Eden was the holy of holies in His temple. Humankind worshipped humankind rather than God, and they were removed from Eden. But God did not give up on them. He showed His love through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel was enslaved, but then Israel was delivered from their slavery into the wilderness. God instructed them there to build a tabernacle for Him, a portable temple where heaven and earth collide, which was a preview of heaven and earth colliding into eternity. And God's people entered eventually into the promised land. They elected to have a human king rather than retaining God as their king, and eventually they built a temple. They re-enslaved themselves under Solomon's leadership. They went into exile. They lost the temple and the Ark of Covenant. And after 70 years, they came back and rebuilt a temple which lacked God's presence. Are you ready for the good part? After hundreds of years of waiting for God to deliver them through a long-awaited Messiah, Jesus, King Jesus, God in the flesh came to earth. Rather than a show of dominance like what led to Israel's fall, He came in the form of an infant. And Jesus is a new chapter in this whole temple saga because Jesus stands in for the temple. He Himself is the very presence of God where heaven and earth collide. Where Israel defended the temple with swords and spears only to fail, this living temple will succeed in conquering death without sword or spear, without horse or chariot. Where the second temple failed to contain the presence of God, this living temple of Jesus is the presence of God. Do you remember what, John, what Jesus said in John 2? In verse 19, it says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. He's talking about His body. He's talking about the, the resurrection, and He won't rebuild it half-heartedly. It will remain the place where heaven and earth collide. And it gets better still, because though the story takes a sad turn, The cycle repeats itself, and humankind worships humankind rather than God. It fails to value the temple as it always has, and it crucifies Jesus. Still, Jesus returns. Do you remember what Mary Magdalene saw when she entered the empty tomb? John chapter 20, verses 11 and 12, it says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying as she wept. She bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot, two angels on either side, just like the two seraphim on the Ark of Covenant. The divine presence of God, it has returned as a new covenant presence in Jesus. And when He ascends into heaven, He leaves the instructions that we read last night, last week, Luke 24, 49. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power on high. Can you see where all of this is going? Once more now, the 15-second recap to make sure we're all following along. Jesus created for Himself a creation temple. 
humankind worships humankind rather than worshiping God, and they were removed from Eden, but God did not give up on them. He showed His love through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When Israel was enslaved, He delivered them from slavery into the wilderness and instructed them to build a tabernacle, a place where God would be present with them, a portable temple where heaven and earth collide a preview of heaven and earth colliding into eternity. God's people entered the promised land. They elected to have a human king rather than retaining God as king, and eventually they built their temple. They re-enslaved themselves under the throne of Solomon. They went into exile and lost the Ark of Covenant and their temple, and they rebuilt the temple which lacked God's presence. But God came in the flesh, and heaven and earth were united at once in the person of Jesus. Jesus was the embodied temple, and just like before, humanity didn't steward over God's presence or over the temple well, but crucified our Savior. He returned, conquering death, and instructed His people to wait for a gift from God, wait in the city for a gift from God. And now our final passage this morning in the climax of the temple story in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost came… They were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they had been sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Do you see what has happened? God never wanted a building. He told that to David. He wanted a people. And on the day of Pentecost, his people became his holy temple. God lives in us. God dwells in us. We are his temple. We are his priests. God lives in you. Unlike the temple in Jerusalem, this temple is not contained to one place. Unlike the tabernacle, it doesn't need to be torn down and and built back up again wherever we go next. God is present with us and in us wherever we are always. We are the kingdom of priests and the holy nation that He has always called His people to be. We are the living presence in which His glory resides. That's why the church isn't a building, but a people. God does not reside in this building, but in this body. And our lives surrendered to Him can become a working model of the new creation, just like the temple was, because we are a new creation people. When our lives are surrendered to Him and our desires are conformed to His desires, when we love as He loves, We show the world what is ahead of it, and we invite it into the future that God has for it. For the last several months, we've been talking about exhaling old ways and inhaling new ways. In Genesis, life is given to Adam, the earthling, when God breathes his own breath into Adam's lungs. And in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is described as a rushing wind. The Holy Spirit is new breath. And we're invited to take it in. We are given new breath, and the Spirit of God is within us. You are a living temple. God is alive in His people. And God is alive in you. Will you join me in prayer?
Lord, we praise you this morning. We praise you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We praise you that our God is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, and that because you are in us, we become the living temple in which your glory dwells. So, Father, we pray that we would steward over your presence carefully, that we would reflect your love into the world, that, that we would act in obedience, and that we would be conformed to the ways of Jesus. Lord, we celebrate this morning. Our God is alive in us. Wherever we go, there God is. Not only for us, but for the world around us. We are a portable temple in the way even the tabernacle could not be. And we are called to be a worshiping presence, a collision of heaven and earth wherever we are. And Father, we, we take that seriously. We surrender ourselves to you. And so on this Pentecost Sunday, Lord, we praise you for the gift of your spirit for the ways that you move in and through us. We praise you especially, Lord, for your presence, which resides in us. You are always near to your people. We don't have to hunt you down or wonder where you are. You are with us. You are in us, and we praise you. Father, we pray that, that we would recognize that blessing not only as a sacred privilege, but as a sacred mission. That we would be your tabernacling presence wherever we go. That you would use our lives to bring your kingdom realities to this earth. Love you, Lord. We praise you together this day. Amen.